Welcome to The Cave, brought to you by Nels Cosmos. Today's guest is Stephen Pressfield, internationally renowned author, known for his best-selling Gates of Fire, based on Thermopylae, the battle between the Spartans and the Persians, and many other things. He's published a new book, A Man at Arms, about Telamon, a Greek mercenary in the Roman army. That's all I'm going to say. Listen to the podcast and please buy the book, A Man at Arms. Look, first of all, thank you so much. Um, I've been a bit of a fanboy of yours for many years, having read the... Well, thanks, thanks for having me. You know, <laughs> having read Gates... Great to be down under. <laughs> well, we, look, let's hope this is all over soon and we can have you down under. I mean, yeah, I, I, yeah. I think, I think uh, a great... Uh, <clears throat> A great uh, national lecture series hosted by us would be fantastic of you. I think it'd be great. <laughs> um, look, um, I've just finished today uh, reading Man at Arms, but before going to that, you know, just to let you know, I've read Lion's Gate, Gates of Fire, your blog. Ah. I'm curious about something. We might as well begin. Your, shall I say, passion or shall I say, fascination with war? Um, I've had a long fascination as a political scientist with war, its effects, its impacts on humanity, positive and negative. Where do you come into this? From which angle do you look at war from? Um, you know, it's, I'm, I'm a believer that as a writer, you don't choose your subjects as much as they choose you. You know, the muse kind of leads you. And when I originally wrote Gates of Fire, it sort of it came absolutely out of nowhere for me. I never planned it. I never, it wasn't something I wanted to do from the time I was a boy. And then when I found myself writing another book in the same vein and another one and another one and another one, uh, it's sort of a mystery to me. But I, I, I think it truly comes from the writer's challenge, the inner war, you know, the, uh, um, that the virtues I think that a solitary artist needs to have are very much like the virtues of a warrior, you know, uh, courage, patience, selflessness, love of the of, of your fellow men, and in that case being your characters, and uh, the willing embracing of adversity, you know, the shit that you go through doing all this stuff, and I, I so I think I, I think of myself kind of as a warrior of the inner of the inner war, of the war in the heart. And, and the, uh, you know, a thing, a battle like Thermopylae is a metaphor for, I, I think it's a metaphor for life, period, for all of us, but it's certainly a metaphor for, for the artist's, the artist's journey, the artist's challenge. I, 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 it's just for the sake of our listeners, the Gates of Fire by Thermopolis is probably uh, one of the most quintessential, look, Historical novels are difficult to get across for everyone, but this is one of the most interesting historical novels because even if you knew nothing about Thermopolis, reading it, you feel like you're almost part of the action. And it's something that you seem to have done very well in arms, uh, Man at Arms. You, you feel compelled to be part of the action. It's, uh, it drags you across the desert. It drags you across places. It, you, I mean, you may not feel the pain. It's a metaphysical notion, but you, 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 you imagine what the pain would be like and what are the core values that these warriors have. Am I correct in suggesting that you see warriors as a kind of a, 
a sense of a value, an ethical value and virtuous life of a warrior? Do you consider that? I do. I mean, I don't see it as the ultimate. I think it's definitely a limiting kind of archetype or identity and it can go bad. It can go wrong, you know, but I definitely see it uh, as among the more powerful archetypes, you know, short of say the archetype of the, the king or the sage, uh, but it's certainly the archetype par excellence of action. And I think a lot of us, and dare I include you as we're talking here, because you're a man of action out in the world doing your thing, uh, operate by warrior principles. We might not be trying to kill other people or anything like that, but we are holding ourselves to a standard of ethics, a standard of honor, and a standard of, of aspiration and of performance. Um, I mean, it, certainly an athlete is, an athlete is, 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 a, you know, is a warrior that just doesn't kill somebody, um, but is in the arena. And you, you Aussies are, are athletes par excellence. So uh, well, it's, uh, interesting. it's interesting you raise the notion of athleticism and athletes. Um, we're going back now, before we go into Rome and the man at arms, which is magnificent, uh, athleticism, particularly in ancient Greece, and right through, you can see it in the Maasai, you can see it in Japan, you can see it everywhere. It's, it's, it's melded with a war craft. I mean, you're an athlete, you're an hoplite or an opiatos one day and the next day you're at war. I mean, and these civilizations all begin with a sense of war. Greece, Israel, uh, Japan, China, there's a warring civilizations that come together under a system. Are we ever going to stop having wars? I mean, I, <laughs> you know, these days where, uh, where war has become so technological and, and, and death can be delivered at such a remote, you know, from such a remote thing. I know you know the story of the Spartan king who was shown a, a new weapon, a kind of a catapult that could launch a killing bolt at you know, 200 yards or something, and he began to weep. And he said, alas, valor is no more, right? Because the, the ancient concept of warfare, at least the ancient Greek concept was that if you were going to kill your man, you had to be so close to him that he had a chance to kill you. So, and anything less than that, you know, even you know, javelins or even archery, even though Apollo was the archer god, was a lesser way of, of of uh, participating in this ritual of combat because you could deal death without being exposed to it yourself. So these days we're way past that, you know? And so the, the concept of, of, uh, of honor as it was expressed in ancient warfare is pretty much gone except in real close quarters combat. Um, and I don't know if that's good or bad. It's interesting that you raise that because um... John, um, someone like uh, Keegan, for example, John Keegan, which I'm sure yeah. you've read, and uh, even yeah. and Morris, all raise the prospect of this uh, period in history, whether it's Papua New Guinea or the Maasai warrior, where close combat between so-called heroes or leaders of the village, in a way, stopped mass mass murder or mass yes, war. yeah, and. And really the first we have of this mass sense of war is Rome. <laughs> suddenly yeah. With these terrible mechanics and the ability to shoot things. And, 
And yet Rome, and we let's just segue a little bit to man at arms. We see that the man at arms himself, Telamon, is a Greek, just for our listeners. He's Arcadian, very close to where I come from, my parents come from. <laughs> <laughs> he, um, but yeah, he's a Roman. And in the second iteration of the Roman, Holy Roman Eastern Empire, Greeks became Romi, became Romans. It's a very multicultural. America will probably be the closest we can get to this notion of Pax Romana in a way, isn't it? That, that anyone could be Roman, really. Uh-huh. Yes. So, I mean, this man carries with him now, he's trying to, just very briefly, he's trying to take the letter by St. Paul to Corinth. I won't go through the detail. It's an incredibly uh, riveting story. But in that, he finds he's still a Roman. You know, that's who he is. Even though he's Greek, there's a greater sense of ethical or moral or honourable belonging to a nation. Is, is that the difference? Is that that we fight for something bigger than us, like Rome or America? Well, I think that's a, it's a great question. You mean like today? Is that what you're asking? Well, okay. consistently. I mean, we're out of the tribe now. We're no longer the Athenians fighting the... Uh-huh. Or the I mean, Spartans would have been the first notion of an ethno-state, the beginning of maybe of something, even though there were more Greeks fighting on the Spartan side, on the Persian side. Right now, we fight for greater ideals. And I think, isn't Rome the first point where you fight for the eagle? You fight for the great ideal. You fight for America. Uh, that's, a re- that's a really good question. I mean, I sort of feel, I mean, you could say Alexander was an, an example of that, you know, prior to that. But right. certainly in, in the Roman days, if you were born in Spain, let's say, or Germania, and it was like Rome was the only game in town, really, unless you were a barbarian fighting against Rome. But if you were a poor boy from Spain, you wanted to enlist in the legions, if you could, or in the auxiliaries of the legions, because that would take you on the adventure of conquest or whatever. It was, you know, I think we forget sometimes that we live in a consumer culture, uh, a mercantile culture that's about selling products, right? But the ancient world was, that was, they never even thought of that, you know? It wasn't possible in any case. Their way of, uh, of, an, of an individual aspiring to better himself was to fight, you know, to go off and, and uh, participate in campaigns and come back with, you know, with loot or just with pay or whatever. So I, I wonder, I don't, I don't know how many people who, who joined the legions who were, say, from Spain or from Gaul or for whatever, were in it because they believed in Rome. I think mm. they were in it because it, it, was the, it was the only way, it was the only game in town, I think. And I'm sure that it was, there was a lot of concept of glory and I'm sure you got your uniform and you put that on, you know, and you're part of a legion, you felt like, you know, you were, you know, you had made it, you know? Um, but I'm, I, I think other than the Romans themselves, I don't know if the other, if the, the uh, non-citizens really really uh cared about that but it's interesting I mean, in this book in a man in arm Rome's is the, are the bad guys yeah yeah and, and that's uh, a, it, it's the bad guys it is the bad guys and yet he telamon exhibits a certain stoicism a certain strength a skill and until the end and i don't want to give anything away because it is worth it's absolutely a fantastic read until the end even then you have a sense of spiritualism but he's not it's not clear whether he's become a Christian or not. There's still a sense of honor or something guiding him, a principle. Am I correct in that? Yeah, I, I mean, I definitely feel like uh, 
Um, he's a man with a code. You know, I sort of patterned him after um, a Western hero, like an American Western, or also like a Mad Max movie in post-apocalyptic Australia, or a samurai, uh, you know, a solitary warrior who has been through everything, has been through victory, been through defeat, served under good leaders, served under bad leaders, and has come to a kind of a code that he lives by for, for his own, as an individual. And I think in the story, at least as I intended it, when we meet him, he's kind of reached the end of that code. He's kind of, he's, he's exhausted it, you know, and he's looking for whatever the next level is. And, uh, well, that's, what, that's Michael, what the story is about. Well, Michael, again, I don't want to give too much. That's where uh -huh. Michael tries to find out what that code is at some yes. point. He says, yes. why are you doing this? I mean, there's no gold. You could have sold us out. You could have done. And, and again, people have to read this. It, it's yeah. really important. There's some very refined and sophisticated thinking in there, which may not jump. I mean, I've been thinking in hindsight, might not jump out at you immediately because it has a cinematic perspective you know there's a cinematic element to your book there's you can oh definitely yeah you can, you can visualize it you know you can see it but there is a very sophisticated philosophical emblem in there um, uh, a view that we don't know whether he's actually found god or gods or spirit but there is a definite code driving him in the end and there's a moral basis to his actions am i yes. saying there's a moral yes i mean he had it sort of all along from the beginning as you know hmm. I won't give away too much that when they ask him what God he worships, he names the Greek goddess Eris strife. Eris, strife. And he says that, you know, all things begin in strife, including the earth itself and all end in strife. But that's really a very dark code that really says war is eternal. It'll never go away. I'm, I am the eternal warrior, the universal soldier. But it's funny philosophically that Greeks and in some ways Jews as well, there is a constant battle, a conflict within us, a sense of trying to figure out who we are as Greeks. There's a, there's a self, at times a manifest as self-loathing, other times it manifests as weakness, other times. But in the end, there's a unity whenever there's an external force, whether it's Turks, whether it's the Nazis, whether it's wherever it is, uh -huh. there's a certain unity. Yes. There. We're quite happy to have been strife with each other, but the unity comes on when there's an <laughs> external fear. Yes. And and in some ways, this your, your book is replete with that because it comes back to his homeland in Arcadia or Arcadia, and um, he seeks what it was initially. And strife is well, the dialectic, isn't it? It's it's a complex. It's conflict is the beginning of civilization, is it not, in some ways? Yes. I mean, and it, se it seems to be eternal, right? Uh, I can't think of very many. The only times when we've been sort of Pax Romana or Pax Americana or Pax Britannica or, or you know, whatever, Pax Hellenica, was because there was some force, not a philosophy and not a religion, but a, an armed force that enforced the peace, you know? And, you know, if, if anybody tried to rise up, they were crushed. But uh, so peace well, is it, definitely not the natural state of mankind and never has been. No, however, we seem to statistically have far less war now than ever before, even though we seem to be in conflict all the time, social media. Yeah. Argument. I think there's a connection there, Fudders, don't you? you know, it's like <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> the idea of, of going to war other than these sort of proxy wars that we have lately, uh, 
is is almost unthinkable because it escalates immediately to you know thermonuclear war you know or something it's it's just unthinkable so mm-hmm. i think maybe that's why we have so much conflict in political spheres and stuff like that where everybody's at each other's throats these days but isn't creativity born of conflict in many ways yeah absolutely i mean uh, uh, you know it, it is interesting for me to, th- to think back to the ancient days of sparta or any one of the the poli that happened in ancient greece pretty much i imagine if you were living there you figured when the summer comes we're going to go to war against somebody. Somebody's going to invade us or we're going to invade them. But, and, but, but they did it from a very different perspective, for example, than the Persians or the Assyrians. We guess, we don't know. We guess that the hoplite in Greece or the Roman citizen soldier, being a citizen soldier is a very different thing to being yes, yes. master-servant relationship. I mean, there's no way Alexander the Great would have got his troops on side if it was just a purely master yes servant relationship um, yes it's very similar to the essenes or the zealots or there's an an individual recognition of belonging to an ethnos or a greater value or a view or religion that you need to do this rather than somebody telling you you have to do this yes and to me I mean, in a, in a way, the, the whole Greek concept of, of, or Athenian, I suppose, I'll give them credit, of not just the citizen soldier, but the citizen, you know, at Pericles' funeral oration, a moment where he says that each one of our citizens, I may say, is the sovereign, the rightful sovereign of his own person, the rightful lord of his own person, which to me comes out of hoplite warfare and comes out of the fact that, you know, the individual stood in the line and took his lumps with everybody else and then you know went back when it was over and went back to his farm and if he was going to do that take his lumps like everybody else then damn, damn it he's going to vote you know he's mm. going to have a voice in the assembly and he's going to be uh and 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 the idea that uh the individual is not a serf not a slave not a vassal not owned by anybody but but free to decide what's right to vote, to participate in juries, to, you know, to express himself. And in fact, that he's obligated to express himself is uh, a great contribution. Absolutely. Sorry, there's an interesting um, notion that someone suggested at some point about 350 BC, Israel, Greece, India, and China came together in some ways philosophically, even though they're very vastly different in many ways, where the citizen warrior the independent landowner had to come into some contract with someone more powerful it wasn't purely a persian or an egyptian serf slave relationship and and that's why you have for example even in ancient judea the constant bickering and conflict between various Jewish groups. And yet there was an overarching theme that they were unified in. Yeah. It hasn't changed at all. Hasn't changed. No, it hasn't. Well, I was going to say just recently, well, just before COVID hit, I was in Greece and it was just fascinating. I was, there were there was special forces firing gas canisters at the Turkish special forces. And in the middle, there was 25,000 refugees caught between no man's land. And Ah. Really? And Greeks were fighting at each uh-huh. other. Once COVID hit, of course, the refugees were taken back by Turkey. But there was this 
even the most progressive of Greeks, the most left-wing of Greeks, all felt a sense of unity at stopping the Turks from allowing this refugees becoming the phalanx, or so to speak, for their own political purpose. You know? so, it's an uh, uh, so again, that unity. COVID hits, as chaotic as Greeks are, immediately they fall into line, which goes back to what I read about in your blog about wearing a mask during COVID or whatever. You put the proposition, what would the Spartans do? Of course, I'd wear a mask. There seems to be some sense of unity that surpasses some of the more liberal Western notions of unity. Would you say there's something there? Oh, definitely. I mean, it's tribal, you know, it's ethno-tribal, right? It goes back to our DNA from mm. the caveman, just about, you know. Mm. But but you're right, it also transcends that. I mean, where does that tribalism leave off and this idea of nationalism come in? I mean, I, I wonder, it'd be very interesting to go back to Philip and Alexander's day, you know, because they really had all kinds of tribes, you know, the hill tribes, the, the, the tribes of the plain that they brought together under the one banner. And I mean, that was Philip's real great contribution. And, um, and, and yet the Spartans never recognized him as a Greek or even close no, to a Greek. I mean, no. <laughs> Spart- I mean, Which it, pissed him off thoroughly. Him off completely. That's right. That was, he, was, he was hanging his hat in the Spartans. I mean, that was the creed that he wanted. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, let me ask you, in terms of your research, your books are so detailed. I mean, without, I mean, just for the readers to understand, it's, they're exciting, they're riveting, but they're also highly authentic. There's an authenticity in the way you write. How do you research that? It can't be just desk research, can it? I mean, you travel to Greece or you've traveled there, you've been to places. Yes, I've traveled. I, you know, I've read everything that there is. Um, but I'll confess something to you here. A lot of the some things that go in there, I, I made it up. You oh. know, I just sort of projected. I mean, when you read ancient texts, as you know, they're very, they're very thin. They don't go into tremendous detail because, like for instance, a hoplite battle. The, the if anybody was going to write about it, Thucydides or Herodotus or anybody like that, Xenophon, they had participated and they knew that their readers, anybody was going to read it or it, it would be the spoken word. You know, it would be read aloud. You know, at a salon or something like that. Those the listeners, they had fought in the battles too, and they knew they knew every they knew exactly what it was like. So the books didn't have to explain anything, didn't have to, that we in the modern world don't, don't know about. You know, like I remember there was, I, was, I read a really wonderful book. You probably read this. It was called uh, The Athenian Trireme. You know the book I'm talking about? It was yeah. where these Cambridge scholars or whatever tried to rebuild or recreate a, an, an Athenian trireme. And of course, they, made a documentary. they even made a documentary out of that trying to do it. Ah, or did they? I never yeah. saw that. Mm-hmm. But there was, uh, uh, they couldn't figure out how to do it. You know, they got the great oarsmen from Oxford and Cambridge and everything like that. They had to, trying to figure out how would the third row, you know, okay, the first row, okay, the second row, but how does the third row get their oar in the water without it becoming, and there was nothing in the ancient world that really explained it because the writers figured everybody knows what a trireme is. It's like you and me writing about a car. We're yeah. not necessarily going to describe the, the ashtray or the gear shift. You would just say, we went down to the store, we got a pack of cigarettes, you know? That's right. um, and I remember that there was, 
a one word that described that sort of was the key to it and they had the greek word in some i don't know what book it was but no modern scholar knew what that word was they'd never seen it in any other place and i think it was there was something about brasidas the, the spark the great spartan general where this word was he was fighting from the deck of a trireme and his shields fell through this thing, this word that nobody knew what it was. And finally they figured out it was an outrigger, that there was a, you know, just like on a Polynesian canoe, there was an outrigger and that was out of the third. Uh, so anyway, this is by way of research. How do you do research? A lot of what you do is you read between the lines mm. and ask yourself, what was it really like? And then you just try to recreate it via the imagination. Because it, it, it has a, a very serious aura of authenticity. I mean, you you know, historical novels are difficult at best because as a political scientist myself, sometimes you kind of go, look, I'd rather read the, the history and the politics rather than novel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yours kind of engage all levels and yet don't become weighty or perfunctory. They they have a a very fluid narrative which means that you do a lot of research when you do this stuff right you were a marine yourself yeah. am i correct in saying this yes. you're a marine yes. yes but you know i i also was a screenwriter for about 10 years that's right that's and right. the training that you get in that is about the details you know when when we see a scene in a movie you know a detective walks into a room and he opens a drawer and he finds a letter or whatever and as we we're watching it, we think, oh, he's just going into a room. But every detail of that room has been thought out and planned. Where the light's coming from, what, you know. So I try to write that same way. I'm trying to put the reader kind of under the helmet, you know, in the boat where, and, and, and let the reader see what the individual person that's the, the soldier or whatever is living. You know, what you, it's exactly like, what the details are. As an artist, you've also written books about being an artist, uh, you know, breaking that great fear that many of us, all of us have sometimes of looking at that blank page, as you say, at some point, you know, that. Yes, yes, I've heard of that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that fear, how does one overcome? I mean, I'm not, I'm not asking for a simple answer or, but you, what propelled you to write about being an artist, about being an artist and overcoming that fear? Uh, well, you're talking about a book of mine called The War of Art. Correct. Which is kind of a short, a short book. And then there's a few follow-ups to it that uh, is about just what you're saying. It's, it's kind of getting in the writer's head or the artist's head. And I, the way that came about was friends would come to me from time to time and they'd say i know i've got a novel in me i want to write a novel or i want to write a book on, uh, about my grandfather's experiences in world war ii or whatever and i would sit up with people till like two in the morning my friends trying to psych them up and tell them you know hey, you can do it you can do it and i would tell them about this particular force this negative force of self-sabotage that they were going to run into. They were going to find themselves procrastinating. They were going to be very afraid. Oh. Or the opposite, they were going to be perfectionists. They were going to spend all day on one paragraph and get nowhere. Or they were going to do what I always did, which is go right up to the end and at the last minute, run away and choke. <laughs> Give it up. Yeah, choke. <laughs> so I would stay up till two in the morning telling my friends, you know, psyching them up. 
And of course, none of them ever did. None of them ever wrote the book. You know, they never did anything. And finally, I just said, I'm going to, I had a little time off and I said, I'm going to just put this on paper in a short book. And when anybody asks me again, I'll just say, here, read this. <laughs> so that's how th that book, it. The War of Art, came about. And it's mainly about that negative force that I call resistance with a capital R. Well, you're very correct in that. I mean, a lot of us feel that. I mean, I'm sure every writer or author has felt that. Let me ask you, um, before we go back, currently America, I mean, we, I mean, the first, I mean, I was very impressed by the essay you wrote on your blog about the importance of wearing a mask and the way you've tied it into the notion of the greater good. What would the Spartans do, you asked? Would they let their shield down? In many ways, our mask in COVID is the shield. How do you, and I'm, you know, it's up to you to answer this. Donald Trump's gone, finally. Well, yes. hopefully, finally. I mean, well, in my view, hopefully. I'm not, you know. Hopefully, finally. In my view I, I, I didn't want to sort of. Uh, right. Uh, is there a sense? Is there a sense of relief? Do you feel a sense of relief in America? I mean, how can one feel? I mean, a broader sense? Is there a normality that's come back to the nation? Uh, no. I'm sorry to say no. Because the, uh, the, the people who supported Trump, and it's, I think it's even worse now with the, uh, the lies that are being told and that so many people in America absolutely believe and believe passionately in. And um, so I'm afraid, no, I think there's still this, uh, you know, what's gonna happen in 2024? Is Trump gonna come back? Well, and the country really is utterly polarized. Can I ask you, you've also written about the Middle East in Lionsgate, which uh, is a great, great book as well. Right now, uh, what's your view of the Middle East? Do you think we are closer to peace than before or further away? Um, you know, I'm, I almost have to recuse myself on that on that subject. I mean, uh, because I just, I'm just not informed enough to know. And I, I have, you know, my exposure to the Middle East when I, with the Lionsgate, the book you're talking about was mm. about the 1967 Arab-Israeli war. Six-day war. Six-day war. Mm. And when I researched it, I only went to Israel. It's not a two-sided thing. It's a one-sided thing. I'm a Jew myself. Mm -hmm. So it was a kind of a coming home experience to me, a connection with my roots type of thing. So basically, I only kind of heard one side of the story. And, and I recognize that there are many sides, many, many, many sides to the story over there. And things are, are, all I really know now is what I read in the newspapers. I don't know what's really going on in Iran. I don't know what Saudi Arabia is all about these days. Um, yeah, I just, I just don't know. I ask because, interestingly, historically, um, the birth of Zionism was very off. It was sparked by the birth of Hellenism in the 19th century and the population exchanges between Turkey and Greece. I mean, Herzl saw that as a great model, and in many ways. Greeks and Jews created these states as, as something they carry on their shoulder. They never really, you know, in modern uh -huh. they never existed. And, uh, uh -huh. and, and in fact, interestingly, both, both nations are the only ones that have the right of return. So if you're a, for a Greek, if you're patrilineally seven, eight, 10 generations and you're born in America or Canada, you go back to Greece, you stay more than three months, six months, you go to the army. There's no 
There's no, there's uh, no way out. Is that right? I didn't know yeah. that. Is that right? Uh, That's right. Uh, and and the only ones to have that right of return is the Israeli state, where if you're a Jewish from the mother's side, matrilineally, yes, you yeah, and get citizenship. And currently, Greece and Israel are experiencing phenomenal relationships, both militarily, economically, and you know, for the first time in many years, partly because of the role that Turkey's playing. So it's an interesting, uh-huh. yeah, it's an interesting Middle Eastern. Yes. development where yeah. Greece and Cyprus are now looking eastward rather than looking westward again. Yes. Right? Everything is very much changing, that's for sure. Over mm. there, you know? In your work, you talk predominantly of a, I should say, Western perspective of war, a Western view of war, and yet these societies, both Israel and Greece and to many extents even Rome, well, both East and West, weren't they? I mean, they... they yeah, they were, like, yeah. yeah. But I would still would say they were primarily Western, hmm. um, in the sense that the, the, the individual initiative of the soldier was valued. You know, it was not like a, a situation where you would have an elite class of like barons and, and, and counts or, you know, like in Britain, that would then bring their kind of men at arms, their vassals with them, and, and who, who were, uh, who would be, um, I don't want to say their chattel or their property, but they did, they wouldn't have a voice, you know, oh, yeah. whereas I think certainly in, in Greece and in Israel in the ancient days, the individual soldier had a voice, you know, maybe too much of a voice. You know, that they can be really unruly at times. Well, it's a democratic army as such. And I guess in many ways that the model of the West is that democratic army where somebody can turn against their, for amoral reasons or unethical reasons, you can go against your captain and and things like that. And at at the same token where individual initiative is, is valued, you know, particularly in Israeli army, you know, where, um, if a, if a lieutenant, you know, makes a decision, goes off on his own, um, that decision, even if he's, if it's a failure or if it's breaking of orders, it's given respect. At least it's, it's, uh, you know, well, they, they value the initiative. Same it's in, different than a Eastern, a classic Eastern type of army. Well, of course, I mean, Australia, I mean, um, Australia and in Greece as well, individual warriors yeah. or, or heroes as we call it. For that. yeah. that's right I, I was going to ask something you talk a lot about masculinity at times i've heard you talk about masculinity and the warrior and these sort of union archetypes we now in america and australia and in britain and much of europe have also women in the army and, and in fact women have always played a role in war i mean uh, the 1820 right now it's a 20 200th anniversary of the revolution against the Turks by the Greeks and women played a major military role in much of that. Where do you see women in this archetype of war, the warrior uh, in your head? I'm, you know, I'm not too clear on how I feel about that either. You know, when you, when you, uh, when you go over to Israel and you're just walking on the street, you'll see these kind of gaggles of, of army girls with their M4 slung over their shoulders along with their Gucci handbags <laughs> and their long ponytails. And I don't really know exactly what, what to make of that. I just was reading today that in the American Marine Corps, for the first time in boot camp, women are going to be training in the same platoons with men. And I'm not sure what I think of what that, is- too. 
It's interesting. Uh, Paul Cartlidge talks about Spartan women, and it's interesting. In the ancient times, Spartan women were quite athletic, military. They had martial skills and all that. And yeah, uh, but men, they didn't um, go to war. They didn't no, wear armor. They didn't no, do that. Yeah. No. Uh, yeah. I guess in the in the mythology, the Amazonians did. I guess in some yeah. mythological sense. Uh, I mean, it's certainly the wave of the future. There's there's no doubt about it that uh, yeah. women are capable of doing you know anything just about that a man can do uh as far as war and peace are you confident that we have reached a plateau now we don't have those you know we don't have world war ii we don't have korea we don't have vietnam we don't have millions dying at war do we anymore i mean you know it's it, it, that's small... what they said before world war one <laughs> you know? that's right okay so yeah. you, you're not confident that it's the end of world wars I'm not. I mean, but also, if you think about it, if we think about the warrior archetype and you think about that each generation seems to have its war, right? If we go back through history, um, I, th I think a big problem with the Vietnam War, as far as it worked in American politics, was that was my generation. My generation was the Vietnam generation. And it was like, our, this was our war. This was the war they delivered to us. And our generation said, well, this war really stinks. You know, this is not, you know, we can't get behind this war. You know, this is not like fighting the Nazis or fighting, you know. And um, I do think in some, in some primitive way, each generation as it comes up wants its challenge, whatever that is, as a generation. And, you know, it's, but nowadays, now that there are nuclear weapons, you just can't do that. You know, you can't have once it passes a certain point, you know, I mean, we just it just it's unthinkable. So I, I do think that's where a lot of the conflict that we have internecine conflict between within the countries, it comes from that, that there's this need to act out in some martial way. And there is no avenue for it uh, other than sports. Sports is like the great outlet of that. Well, um, rugby, rugby itself really begins as a peacetime war activity when you're not at war. I mean, so rugby when it's first iteration. Right. I mean, I wish we could have sports that would take over all of the planet that way. You know, <laughs> if only we could do that. Yeah, well, be good. Because it does get out those those emotions. That that's. So you think it's a natural thing, war? Do you think it's a natural thing of humanity to have war, to be in conflict? Uh, it certainly seems to be if we look back through history. I would say more, I think it's, I don't think it really needs to come to killing. I think sports is a great example that, you know, uh, whatever the rugby world championships are, or cricket or football or baseball, or, or it's, it's very satisfying emotionally. To the players and to the fans you know that's that emotion seems to find a real channel that works it's not like when the super bowl is over everybody says oh i'm still pissed off i think <laughs> you're sort of you're kind of so it does it but i i think it's not so much killing as it is a trial young men and women too want to test themselves it's just in the blood right they want to push themselves to the limit. They want to do something as a group, as a collective, you know, whether, you know, uh, whether it's a team or a battalion or whatever. 
and they want the stakes to be high. But I don't think it's necessary that blood has to flow for that emotion to be satisfied. And what about camaraderie and uh, working? Yeah, that's that part of that it stuff. too. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it's amazing to think of uh, veterans that are about ninety-five years old, and that still and fought together. You know, on whatever ancient battlefield, and every year they get together, right? And they love each other like. It was the, the, the moment of their lives, the supreme moment of their lives. So, but I, again, I don't think blood has to flow for that to happen. Peace is interesting. I mean, I was watching a Smithsonian special recently, and um, it seemed incredible for me that after the most uh, brutal and bloody period of conflict, particularly in the Pacific with America, that peace came easily. Of course, when, you, when you're the victor, but because the Americans didn't go into Germany or Japan as victors, but came in as kind of reformers in a way, there was almost a very quick acceptance of them as the new victors, and 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 you could see the Japanese even you know even were happy. Well, happy is not the right word, but they didn't feel like they were being oppressed by the Americans. They knew that this was the big a new beginning. I mean. Do you think? Uh, do you think that's really true? I'm not so sure about the Japanese. I think maybe the Germans accepted Americans more. I'm not sure. Yeah, but I mean, it might be. A, it might be also, you know, uh, a racial thing as well. There's an F definite element to that. I think. With the, the samurai, more. yeah, the samurai creed or the sense yeah. of losing or whatever. I'm I mean, not so sure they don't resent the hell out of it. <laughs> but well, I don't know. I don't know. Do you? I'll tell you a crazy thing for whatever me, this is tell worth. Me, tell me. Is if you think about uh, Japan, you think about baseball and golf. Right. That two things that sort of that the Americans brought over there that became embraced wholeheartedly and made into a, a Japanese thing that it was like, forget about where it comes from. We just love it. You know, we can't get, and somehow. When there is baseball and there's golf, there's not war. Well, I don't know what if you think about the Middle East, there's no baseball and there's no golf. Well, the, there was a, I was about to add, there's no cricket either. I mean, look at India. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's a great example, too. India, Pakistan. India, yeah. Pakistan. Yeah. I mean, cricket. There's no war. No, well, mind you, I guess a lot of people would claim that cricket is a little boring compared to baseball, but mind you, some of us love but it. But the passion behind the passion it behind is it. unbelievable. Um, look, as we close off, I just want to thank you and thank you for our listeners. And look, I just want to recommend Man at Arms and in fact, recommend everything you've written. Your Man at Arms is currently available in audio, but it's it still hasn't been released, I think, here as a book. We have to order it. Is that correct? I'm not uh, sure. I think so. It actually hasn't been released here in the States either oh, good. until it's like two more days away. Two okay, because I've ordered my copy with your signature, apparently. So I've done my uh, <laughs> I want it signed. Look, I hope it's not traveling by ship. Oh, uh, well, it doesn't matter. Look, um, Stephen, I thank you so much for your time. It's, thank it's you for been, this. Thanks for having me. No, it's been an honor. And um Let's keep in touch, and I'm sure yes, our listeners, definitely. our listeners, will be very happy to have hear from you and purchase as many copies of Manor <laughs> as possible for everyone. Thank you very much, Stephen. Appreciate All right, it. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Fotis. You've been listening to the Cave. 
Brought to you by Neos Cosmos. I'm Fotis Capitopoulos. Our producer is Ben Cardwell. And don't forget to go to neoscosmos.com for more episodes of The Cave and that Hellenic perspective. <laughs>